Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Big Tent USA. At Big Tent USA, we put democracy above partisanship. We're building a women-led voter coalition to protect the guardrails of democracy, ensure government accountability and transparency, and increase civic participation. Big Tent USA is very grateful to Scott Stewart for introducing us to tonight's rock star speaker, Neil Katiel. Not only is Scott a friend of Big Tent, but he is also a founding partner at Sage Capital. He's a trustee at Dartmouth College and chairman of the board at Sloan Kettering Memorial Hospital. And he was recently chosen as one of Crane's New York business notable nonprofit board leaders. Thank you, Scott, and welcome, Neil, to Big Tent USA. Thank you very much, Kitty. So most people know Neil from his amazing resume and accomplishments. He was the acting solicitor general. He's argued in front of the Supreme Court uh, 50 times. But I first heard of Neil in November of 2020, right after election day. And during the dark days between that election day and inauguration day, when Trump was disputing the results of the 2020 election through 62 lawsuits, Neil literally kept me and thousands of other people I know sane with his brilliant, pithy, confident, and funny analysis of the status of these frivolous lawsuits. And as he predicted, Trump lost 61 out of 62, and he won one on a technical matter. Biden was inaugurated, and everything seemed great. Unfortunately, as we all know, Trump's attack, attack on democracy continues to this day. So I find myself again hanging on Neil's every word as he dissects the tr Trump's numerous civil and criminal lawsuits and the challenges to Trump's eligibility under the 13th Amendment. I've been so impressed with all, every, all the efforts of Big Ten to preserve our democracy that I asked Sue Mandel if she'd like Neil to appear tonight. Thankfully, he said yes, and I look forward to hearing from my now friend and fellow Dartmouth trustee on the state of our fight to keep our republic. So Neil, thank you very much for doing this tonight. Let's get started on the Supreme Court because it is some, it's where we all know you from and you've spent a lot of time in front of SCOTUS. So um, I watched a TED talk that you did in 2020 and you were talking about the first time that you argued in front of the court, um, which was a very big case. And Osama bin Laden's driver was your client. Um, you talked about bringing talismans to the court. And I want to quote you here. You said, confidence is the enemy of persuasion. And argument is about interaction. So I'd love to have you take us back to that case and then walk us forward to what it's like for you now, how you prep differently, or if you do, and just share with us what it's like to, to be in the court with, um, with you and the Supreme Court. So thank you. And Kitty, let me just start by thanking you and Scott. Um, anytime Scott asks me to do something, I do it. He rarely does, but I have so much respect for him and so much respect for this organization. Um, it's doing exactly the kind of work that I want to celebrate. Um, <clears throat> so um, the Supreme Court. So first of all, you should know oral argument at the Supreme Court is an hour long. It's a half hour per side. And it's it used to be like uh, nine days long in the 1800s during the days of Daniel Webster. 
but now it's a half hour per side. So it's like I had a Hindu wedding, but I married someone Jewish. And so she gave me a half hour for the Hindu wedding. Normally it's three days long, compressed a half hour. Same thing with Supreme Court arguments. So it's um, it's so compact that basically I will go up with one line on a legal pad, hope I can say my sentence on the legal pad before getting the first question. And we'll talk a little how it's changed post-COVID later, but, um, but that's how it is. It's like rapid fire, I average about 50, five zero questions in a 30 minute argument. So what it means is like, you can't really slip up. It's a little like the Olympics, like any kind of mistake, um, it just catastrophizes your entire argument. So you're terrified of that. And I certainly was. And I was also like, for my first argument, like the stakes were super hard, super high. It was the constitutionality of Guantanamo and the military trials there, which were putting people to death. And also the question, do the Geneva Conventions apply to the war on terror? So I filed this case in the trial court. I first like wrote about it as a, as a law professor. So I wrote about it. I testified on the Hill. I don't think anyone read what I wrote except my mom. So um, ultimately I decided it's gonna be my first lawsuit I've ever filed. I'm suing the president. I mean, I'm just like a 30 year old law professor at Georgetown. And nobody thought we could win. We win it in the trial court. We lose it in the court of appeals in a three to zero decision on that panel of three judges, the nation's second highest court was a guy named John Roberts. And on June 12th, 2005, he ruled against us. On June 15th, 2005, three days later, he was nominated Associate Justice of the Supreme Court by the defendant in the case, George Bush. And then two weeks later, he was elevated to a nomination to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So, because uh, William Rehnquist sadly passed away in the interim. So I had to basically <clears throat> convince the Supreme Court to hear this case. It was the most important case their new Chief Justice had ever written. Um, and been on the panel for. And so, um, you know, in the Supreme Court, it takes five votes to decide a case generally, but four votes to hear it. So we had to convince four justices to hear the case and perhaps rule against their new chief justice, which is really hard. The Supreme Court gets about 10,000 requests to hear cases a year. That's called technically a petition for certiorari. It just means, hey, hear me. Um, and they take about 60, 60. So it's really hard to get your case heard by the Supreme Court. It's like easier to get into Dharmath as an undergraduate than it is to get your case heard by the Supreme Court. So ultimately we did get the case granted. And then I got terrified out of my mind because I'd never argued in the Supreme Court. I'd clerked there for Justice Breyer, but I never um, argued. And in fact, when I clerked, you become friends with the clerks of the other chambers. And uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist had a law clerk named Ted Cruz, and we were friends. And Ted and I would often joke about how um, we should start a Supreme Court malpractice law firm because the lawyers were so not good, um, or many of them, that we thought it would be a lucrative practice. So when the case got granted by the Supreme Court, my first thought was to flash back to the Ted Cruz conversations and think to myself, God, I don't want to be that guy. 
And so I tried to give the case away. I tried to give the case away to my friend, Ken Starr, who was President Bush's Solicitor General, also got in some controversy when he was independent counsel investigating Bill Clinton. He said he'd love to do it, but his law firm wouldn't let him. Turns out like representing bin Laden's driver is not exactly a hot thing for client, for, for law firms and clients. Um, and then I asked another friend of mine, a great conservative advocate, um, and he couldn't do it. And so ultimately I decided to do it. And, and this gets Kitty to your question about confidence being the enemy of persuasion. What's all that about? So I decided if I was gonna do it, I was gonna do everything I could to win the case. So I spent months and months doing nothing but prepping for the case. And I basically took a legal pad out of all the people who scared me the most and wrote down the names of all the people who scared me the most in the country. I mean, um, lawyers, not scary people like Halloween scary or something, but, but scary, like people who are brilliant. And I went around the country and practiced my argument in front of them. And at the very first one, which was at Harvard Law School, Larry Tribe, a very famous professor there, was grilling me with questions. And afterwards, he said to me, you know, Neil, you look a little small at the podium. You don't have the presence you need for this case. And that was great advice. He was right, because I was, forget about confident, I was like on my heels so deferential that it wasn't working. And then alternatively, I'd be like giving a speech at them and saying, you must do this. None of that worked. And um, ultimately, my co-counsel in the case, he said, hey, I got this crazy idea. I know this acting coach. You want to try him? So we brought the acting coach in. And I first looked at him, and I was like, billowy white shirt, bolo tie. I'm like, long hair down to here. I'm like, this is not Supreme Court of the United States material. But boy, I was wrong. He basically said to me, tell me your argument. And I pulled my legal pad out, and I was telling him my argument. And he said, no, look at me tell me your argument. And I start telling him my argument and I can see it's resonating in a way it wasn't before. It's about connection between me and him. And he made that point very concrete because he said, now do your argument holding my hand. Totally weird. Nothing they teach you at the Yale Law School, but it was exactly right. Because if you build that connection and that relationship, um, and you understand you're in a common call, calling for truth. It's very different than, oh, I'm going up there to get grilled or to persuade and change someone's mind. Now you're going up there to tell the best version of the truth in your story that benefits your client. But it's all about kind of give and take and communication. So that's what I brought into the argument the first time. Um, and I was facing President Bush's Solicitor General, a great lawyer. It was his 35th argument, um, but it went well, and we won. And the Guantanamo tribunals came down. Uh, President Bush tried to reauthorize them in a very limited way. But so far, we still never really had a trial at Guantanamo, and certainly no one put to death. And instead of 800 people there, there are now just a handful. So, um, And the Geneva Conventions applied to the War on Terror which meant the end of ghost prisons, the end of waterboarding and enhanced interrogation techniques worldwide. So it was a big change to the system. And it really did underscore to me that, and you know, I know there's lots of controversy about the Supreme Court and I don't mean to shy away from that. We can talk about Dobbs and so on, but at its best, the Supreme Court is about protecting the little guy and recognizing as our founders did, 
that even the highest officials in our land make mistakes and we need to have a system to self-correct them. I really appreciate you sharing that story as do so many people um, chiming in, in the chat. Um, and one of the nice, one of the lovely things that you said about arguing that case was that you had written the names of your children on a legal pad so you could remember why you were arguing that case because you wanted to change America. And it's a real testament to your love of them that you did change America forever um, for better. So uh, on behalf of America, I want to thank you for that. Um, okay, so let's go, let's bring this to the present day because you've argued more cases now than Thurgood Marshall. So it was, I think we're at 53, Neil, am I correct? 53? Uh, just 50. Oh, just 50. Okay. Well, I, you're going to, anyways, you're going to do 51 this year too. I know. Um, so let's go to Moore v. Harper because um, that was a big one. Uh, a lot of us at Big Tent and our community were uh, nails on chalkboard, biting our teeth, what's going to happen. Tell us a little bit about why Morby Harper was such a big deal. And if you can sort of bring in, we know that um, it's sounding like Michigan is going to try to re-argue the independent state legislature theory. Talk to us about Morby Harper, please. Yeah, so this is a case that sounds technical, but at stake was pretty much some of the most foundational precepts of our democracy, stuff that I know Big Ten cares for. Um, Judge Michael Ludig, who's a prominent former conservative judge called the case the most important case for the Supreme Court and democracy ever in its 250 years. And I don't think that was an exaggeration. So here's what the case is about. Um, if you think back to the 62 lawsuits that Scott mentioned um, where Trump filed and lost, um, most of those were in state court. And state courts historically have policed elections in all sorts of ways. Um, like during COVID, they extended the ballot hours or they allowed more, more, more polling places or absentee ballots or whatever. Trump challenged all of those saying state courts have no role in the federal scheme and he lost. Um, but it was a very important kind of conservative ideology that state courts have no role to play. It's all up to state legislatures. And this wasn't just true for presidential elections, it was true for elections to the House and Senate of the United States. And um, conservatives for 20 years had invested in taking over state legislatures and not quite as successfully in state courts. So that's why, no surprise, they wanted to have state legislatures call all the shots. Okay, to make this concrete, I'll tell you what the facts of Moore were. So Moore versus Harper comes from North Carolina. North Carolina is a politically evenly divided state. Um, there are 14, it's probably 50-50 Dems and Republicans. There are 14 congressional seats in North Carolina. That means to the US House of Representatives. And state legislatures draw the lines for how those electoral maps are gonna look. Now, with the advent of modern computing and statistics, legislatures can draw these maps in ways that gerrymand in really powerful ways. So that's what the North Carolina Republican legislature did. They drew the map so 11 of the 14 seats would go to Republicans. Voters challenged that, saying, and others like Common Cause, that was a group I represented, a nonpartisan voting rights group. And these folks said, hey, it should be 7-7. State legislatures can't just kind of, you know, 
protect their own political party, you've got to protect democracy. And they bring that case up to the North Carolina Supreme Court, which agrees with them and orders new maps to be drawn that were fair, like seven, seven maps. The Republican National Committee, not happy with that, then brought the case to the United States Supreme Court. And they told the United States Supreme Court, state courts have no business in federal elections. And they didn't have a terrible argument because here's what the text of the constitution says. The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So the rules for federal elections have to be set by the, in each state by the legislature thereof. And so the Republican argument is, it says legislature thereof, doesn't say courts or anything else, legislature means legislature. But you know, those of you with legal training, those of you even without legal training, know that words often don't aren't so simple. So if there's a rule that says there are no vehicles in the park, that doesn't block baby strollers from coming in. Sometimes words have background meanings that are incorporated into a document. Here, the most important thing was that when the founders used the word legislatures, they meant legislatures the way legislatures were understood in 1787, which means bodies that make law subject to judicial review, subject to courts and to checks and balances, ordinary checks and balances. And so <clears throat> just like the governors, which can veto state legislation, including gerrymandered maps or something like that, governors are not legislature thereof. They're part of the executive branch. So too, courts aren't, but they're part of the lawmaking process. That was basically our argument. Nobody thought we were going to win. Everyone thought we were going to lose. I always thought we were going to win. So even before the oral argument, um, I thought we would win because this is a court that is about originalism, the original intent of the Constitution. And the original intent was really clear. Like the Articles of Confederation have the same word legislature in it, and it meant judicial review and meant state constitutions have a role to play and so, so on. So I always felt if we could get the court to focus on original intent and the evidence that we had, we were gonna win. In fact, I put two members of my team to do nothing for three months, but go research in the archives, all the history of this clause in the constitution. Okay, you can have a great theory. How do you actually get the time to persuade the court, particularly when it's a historical theory, which is very detailed? This is where Supreme Court argumentation becomes more of an art than a science. So remember I told you that I get half in a half hour, I get about 50 questions and they can come from everywhere. That isn't true actually over my last five arguments. It was true for the first 45 or so before COVID. But after COVID, a weird thing happened. So the first thing that happened, they closed the courtroom and they made us buy these expensive speaker phones and we'd have to argue the case from our house um, over a speakerphone. And as you all remember from the speakerphone era, everyone's talking over each other, there are no visual clues, but the Supreme Court was allergic to cameras in the courtroom, they didn't want that. So, um, so that's why we had to use speakerphones. And because of the speakerphones, the court decided to change the oral argument format so the justices would go in order of seniority and ask questions. So I was arguing on the second day of COVID. On the first day, I was listening 
And interestingly, the big question was, is Justice Thomas, who's the most senior justice, going to ask any questions? He hadn't asked a question in a long time, like since 2006. But in 2020, he started asking questions, and they were good questions. Okay. Fast forward to the vaccination era. In the vaccination era, the court says anyone can ask questions again. But what interestingly happened, and it's not in the rules, was that all of Justice Thomas's colleagues deferred to him to ask the first question. So I've been trying to think about, like, how do I use that knowledge to my advantage? I know Justice Thomas is going to ask the first question. I also know that Justice Thomas is the strongest advocate of original intent. So I come up with a set play. And the set play is, I give my opening lines. Justice Thomas asks the first question. I don't remember what the first question is, quite honestly. But then I answered it. And then I said, and Justice Thomas, may I say, in arguing before you for more than two decades, I've been waiting for this case because this case speaks to your method of constitutional interpretation, the original intent of the document, and here are the four things you need to know about the original understanding of this clause, the elections clause. And then I got several minutes of uninterrupted time to play out that history. And at that point, I felt like we're going to win. There's, it's just irrefutable. My colleagues didn't quite see it that way. Um, after the oral argument, they actually filed, the people on my side, including the Biden administration, filed papers in the Supreme Court saying, get rid of the case. It's now moot for technical reasons that I don't want to go into here. And I, by myself, uh, I said, nope, the case isn't moot. And I filed a paper saying, no, decide this case. Now, I knew that if the court agreed with me that the case wasn't moot and decided the case, and if they decided it against us, that my career as a Supreme Court lawyer was over. Big tense, not inviting me to speak. Um, it was a very agonizing moment, but I felt very much like we were right. And lo and behold, the Supreme Court in a six to two decision on that question uh, on, said that we were right on the elections clause. One justice, Justice Alito, said the case was moot. By the way, I persuaded six justices, including the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, I did not persuade Justice Thomas. Okay, well, that's a whole other conversation. Um, I do want to quote Judge Ludich since you referred to him, because um, I, I he's kind of a hero of mine, um, which I never thought I'd say, but I am saying it. Single best oral argument I have ever heard before the Supreme Court was what you did. Well, we love and, Justice Lid, Judge Ludig, but remember, he's only heard one argument before the Supreme Court. Well, I mean, you know what? Take it, Neil. Take it and run. Okay, let's let's turn to current day cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, you and I had um, emailed about talking. You are going to argue the case about Mifepristone. Um, so should we start with that one? Yeah, I'm not going to argue it. My partner is going to argue it. Okay. Granted, um, and we don't know if the court's going to hear the case, but I you know, strongly suspect that they will. Okay. Okay, so, great. But, but to, to launch into it, uh, mifepristone is a drug. Well, let me, before mifepristone, maybe let's talk about the elephant in the room, the Dobbs decision first. Okay. Um, so um, this is, in my view, a pretty horrible decision. Not pretty, it's a horrible decision. Um, Roe versus Wade set out a trimester framework in 1973 um, that protected a woman's right to choose. 
And that decision was written by Harry Blackman, someone appointed by a Republican president, joined by six other justices, all of whom were appointed by Republican presidents, or maybe one wasn't, but it was a seven to two decision um, um, with seven Republican justices on the Supreme Court, nominated justices on the Supreme Court. There were certainly criticisms of Roe, lots of public protests and the like. And in 1992, some people thought the Supreme Court was poised to overrule Roe. And instead, what happened is a trio of Republican appointed justices, Justices Kennedy, Souter, and O'Connor, wrote an opinion saying, look, there are, you can disagree about Roe and its merits, but it is the rare decision that is so woven into the fabric of our society in which social expectations have crystallized around the decision that we can't overrule it. It's essentially a super precedent, something with the maximum amount of what we as lawyers call stare decisis available to it. Um, to, to overrule it, they said, would be to tell the public that law has no meaning and that it's just up to the whims of whichever justices happen to get on to the Supreme Court after the political confirmation process. So that's where the law stood for a long time. And then you have the Dobbs decision overruling Roe, saying it's, uh, you know, that there is no constitutional right to an abortion. And if the Supreme Court can overrule Roe, well, then in my mind, they can overrule anything. It means that there is no force to precedent um, because Roe was the hardest case to overrule as that Republican uh, nominated trio of justices said in 1992. And nonetheless, the court overruled it. Now, what they said at the time was that um, they're gonna leave the decision to the states and a state like New York could have a right to abortion and a state like Mississippi could outlaw it. That isn't quite what's happened. I mean, first of all, the Republican National Committee has a policy of trying to ban abortion in all 50 states through a federal law that won't pass so long as the Senate is controlled by Democrats, but it could of course change in 2024, which would not leave the issue to the states. States are also banning travel across state lines to try and get an abortion, in fact, even criminalizing it. So that would mean that again, it's not really fully left up to the states. And then you have the Mifepristone case, a third example of this problem that with the Supreme Court's rhetoric about leave it to the states. So this is one of two drugs that's used as part uh, to induce abortions, chemically induced abortions. And it was approved by the FDA in 2000. And the studies show it's safer than Advil. Um, very, very few side effects. But like any drug, there are some side effects. So what a bunch of um, conservative activists did is they found some doctors who said, hey, this mifepristone decision by the FDA, it hurts me um, because, well, it doesn't hurt me as a doctor, but it hurts my patients. Like they may come in with a headache or something like that. And by hurting them, they're hurting me. Um, in on Back on earth, this is not something that is a lawsuit. Um, yeah, it's a gripe that you have as a doctor. You would take it up with the FDA. Um, the idea that you'd march into federal court to try and say the FDA got it wrong and 
that the FDA is harming me when it's not even harming you, it's harming one of your patients and it's a minimal side effect, something the FDA has already considered, it's part of its balancing. Um, it's, it's a very odd lawsuit, but nonetheless, um, this was filed and it was filed in a particular district in Texas in which there's only one judge. And it's a judge who is, um, uh, I would say, as out of the mainstream as any judge that I've certainly come across, not just in the United States, but in any of the 194 countries on this earth. Um, and so the judge basically uh, stopped Mifepristone nationwide. The Supreme Court immediately put that decision on hold. So Mifepristone is now available um, to, to women. Um, but that's the question that is now potentially going up to the United States Supreme Court. And as I say, I suspect it will go up. Um, it's an enormously important decision um, issue. And, and I, um, you know, obviously we're involved in the case, so take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, but I think reasonable commentators on both sides of the aisle and both sides of pro-life or pro-choice or whatever you want to call them, I think most people expect that um, uh, the challenge here uh, to Mifepristone will fail. We got a couple questions in the chat about um, the fact that obviously if you're in Texas and abortion is banned at six weeks, but you can call and talk to a doctor in New York where it's legal. So wouldn't this be an, a, an impediment to interstate commerce or, I mean, how does that even work? Yeah, correct. So that's um, part of what's going on with some of these challenges. There's something called the Dormant Commerce Clause. It's not actually in the Constitution. It's the flip side of what is in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8, as you all know from Hamilton in the Constitution, says that Congress is given the power to regulate commerce over the 50 states. And with that, the inverse proposition of that is that states can't regulate interstate commerce. That if you're a state okay. and you're impacting stuff across state lines, you're not allowed to do that. And so that's why the challenges to these laws are now being filed, and I suspect we'll have some purchase. Okay. We have a couple questions about the case in Colorado um, about whether or not um, the 14th Amendment um, prohibits Donald Trump from being on the ballot. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that, because obviously Judge Ludic has talked about this. Um, I know we don't want to quite go to Trump yet, but I, I think this case is important. We'd love to hear your thoughts, Neil. Yeah, so, okay, so for the 14th Amendment of the Constitution in Section 3 bars insurrectionists from holding public office, um, passed for an obviously really important reason after the Civil War. It does say that Congress can lift the bar on an insurrectionist if they have a reason to do so. Um, but it requires a congressional vote. So what's happened in Colorado, and I think a couple of other states with perhaps more to follow, is that voters have gone to the court and said, you can't put Donald Trump on the ballot. He's ineligible under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. The Trump defenders are saying a few things in response. First, they're saying insurrectionist means insurrectionist in 1866 not insurrectionists of today. So it was only about the Civil War. That strikes me as a very weak argument for reasons that William Bowd, um, who's a very conservative law professor at University of Chicago, um, have, has written about. Um, 
they and Michael Stokes Paulson, they co-wrote a very long uh, law review article about this, basically saying the intent of the 14th Amendment, the original understanding of it, was not to freeze it only for 1866, but to basically say, in democracies like ours, insurrectionists need not apply. Um, and so not, not a particularly controversial proposition, I think. I think the Trump people will lose that piece of it. They also will say that the presidency is not an office under the Constitution. Um, that's a kind of weird argument. It's hyper-technical. Again, I don't think going anywhere. Um, in fact, presidency seems to me like the ultimate office of the United States. The last argument is, I think, the most powerful for the Trump people, and that is you don't want to give courts and a bunch of voters the power to remove someone from the ballot. That if you do it here for Trump, they're going to do it next time. They'll call Biden an insurrectionist, or you know, if Harris or Gavin Newsom runs in 32, they'll call them insurrectionists, and they can find some state courts um, and others who will, you know, buy that argument. And so it's anti-democratic. I do think that that argument has weight to it. I do think that we have to worry about the dual, the precedent that is being set. I don't buy the examples of you know, Biden or Harris or Gavin Newsom, because I actually think the Republicans will do that no matter what. Whether, whatever happens in Colorado and other states, um, I think they'll file those lawsuits and try and prevent people from getting on the ballot. But I don't know that we want to give that credence unless the case is so strong that this person is an insurrectionist and has violated the norms of our democracy. Here, I think we've met that burden, um, uh, that we're at that stage, that what Donald Trump did before January 6th, on January 6th, after January 6th, shows him to not be a loyal citizen of the United States. Um, and so, you know, I, I agree with Judge Ludig and others like William Bout, who've said that the 14th Amendment does bar Donald Trump from holding public office. A lot of people wanted to thank you. Thank you for that, because it's clarifying. Um, before we move on to lots of Trump questions, um, is there any, are there any other cases that you think we should be paying attention to that maybe aren't getting the top of the line um, press? No, I don't think so. Well, I mean, I'll just briefly mention this case about what's so-called Chevron deference. This sounds really technical, but it can have a big impact on your lives. So basically, when Congress passes laws, they try and use precise language, but they're Congress, um, and particularly these days, if um, you know precise language isn't exactly their forte. And so the statutes they pass are sometimes ambiguous. And in 1984, the Supreme Court decided a case called Chevron. And Chevron says that if a statute is vague and an agency, an administrative agency like the SEC or the Federal Communications Commission or whatever, if they interpret it, in a reasonable way, then the court should defer to that and say that's the right way to think about it. It's basically about agencies being experts as opposed to generalist courts. This decision has been cited, the Chevron decision, more than any other decision by the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, so it's majorly entrenched in our law, and yet 
There are some justices um, who want to overrule it, the same kind of folks that brought you Dobbs. And so I think it's, it's going to be important practically um, because agency deference is the rock on which lots of rules are built, but also in philosophically in about the future direction of the court. If, as I say, if they overrule Dobbs, which is so hard, and overrule Chevron, which is so hard, there is nothing they can't overrule. That is, that's terrifying. Before we uh, move on, we did get a couple of questions about um, gun reform and you had talked about Clarence Thomas um, and he wrote the Bruin decision. So you, I know US versus Rahimi is being heard. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what you see in that case? And is there an opportunity for maybe the court to not go down the, uh, the you know, domestic abusers have the right to have firearms? What, what's your thinking on this, Neil? So the Second Amendment is an area in which the court has really changed things. Back in the 1970s, Chief Justice Warren Burger, a conservative appointed justice, said the Second Amendment obviously doesn't confer an individual right to bear arms, that it's about the collective rights of militias, not about individuals. And he called it preposterous to think otherwise. Well, the Supreme Court in 2008 said, nope, for the first time, we didn't know this for 200 years of our history, but now we're interpreting the Second Amendment to confer an individual right to bear arms. And there are some good arguments for it. I don't mean to say it's impossible, but it was against 200 years of history. But when they decided that case, they decided it for a self-defense gun in your home, not carrying it around on the streets. Then last year, they decided a case called New York Rifle versus Bruin, and in Bruin, they said that you have a right to carry a concealed firearm um, in public spaces. Now, they had an exception for sensitive places. They didn't tell us what that is, but you know, perhaps um, subways or schools or government buildings or things like that. I'm involved in um, kind of a lead test case on that question. Um, but um, uh, but you know, that's kind of where things stand. Um, and now this term, as you're asking, Kitty, there's a case called United States versus Rahimi. Um, there's a prohibition if you're a domestic violence offender on possessing a firearm. And Rahimi brought the constitutional claim that I'm allowed to possess firearms. I have a Second Amendment right to possess them. And in Bruin, what the court said is that in order to decide whether something violates the Second Amendment, or at least what it arguably said, this is what Rahimi saying, you have to show a historical analog to the present day statute back in 1787. So applied to Rahimi, this test says, you've got to show that domestic violence abusers weren't restricted from using firearms in 1787. Now, while domestic violence was of course a thing back in 1787, I don't think it was thought of as quite the thing that we think of it today. The idea that you have to have some precise historical analog to me sounds crazy. Um, I mean, there are any number of things because of the modern advent of firearms and you know machine gun. I mean, there's no prohibition on machine guns in 1787. Um, that oddly enough, no. Yeah, or having yeah. a, a grenade launcher, but nonetheless, um, you know, I think we don't think that you know any 21 year old can have a grenade launcher. So. Um, it's an enormously important case, not just for domestic violence um, victims, but also because it does is going to possibly 
cut back on that, what you called, Kitty, the Bruin test of saying, is there a precise historical analog? Okay, let's, uh, let's move on to the, um, John Mulaney described Trump as the horse in the hospital. Can we move on to the horse in the hospital? Um, anyway, so let's Thank talk. You, Mulaney. Everyone should listen to it. Um, it's Mulaney, just the, the best. Mulaney, <laughs> by the way, loves the law. His dad is a lawyer, his mom's a law professor. Um, I interviewed him for my podcast, Courtside, the new version, which is um, you can get anywhere. And it's I think it's episode one. And he got so into it down to the footnotes of Supreme Court cases. Um, remarkable. I, I can believe that. One of my favorites too, Neil. So maybe he can come to Big Ten. <laughs> Anyways, um, can, let's talk about timing. A lot of questions. Um, we'd love to have you rank those four um, indictments against Trump, the four cases. Um, we'd love to hear your your timing thoughts. Are any of these going to go to trial before before the 2024 election? And will Donald Trump see jail time? Is he going to go to jail for these gag orders? And talk to us about these plea deals. So let's let's go deep. There's a lot there. Um, yeah, and you got like with what I think is the most open and shut case, which is okay. the Lago case. Um, I was national security advisor at the Justice Department. Um, I can guarantee you if I took any piece of paper home, let alone the 139 pieces of paper, um, that I would have been fired and put in jail right away. I mean, this is like a no-brainer for anyone in the national security world. Um, what he did was so horrendous, so beyond the pale. It's an open and shut felony. Um, and I think, you know, the government's building a hugely powerful great case against him which isn't hard to do given what he did. Um, the problem there is that they have this judge who seems, at least was last year, very bent on um, bending the rules. Um, she last year during the search warrant process appointed a special master, um, something that never really happens in a circumstance like this. And she was slapped down for her decision by the Court of Appeals, a very conservative Court of Appeals with I think two of the three were Trump appointees. Um, but nonetheless, they saw it as beyond the pale. The question is, you know, how much is she gonna be like that last year, erratic, or is she um, gonna act differently? Um, I don't think we have enough intelligence to know. I mean, she's a sitting federal judge, I respect her. I very much hope that she just applies the same rule book to him that is applied to everyone else. And if that happens, he will be convicted and he should be convicted before the election. With respect to the two different January 6th cases, one in Georgia and Fulton County by state, one by Jack Smith in the special counsel in Washington, DC, I think that the DC one is gonna go on March 4th. That's the trial date that's set. And indeed, if anything, it could go earlier. Um, the judge is a really, really well-respected judge on both sides of the aisle. Um, and um, uh, Trump has been playing games and she's having none of it. And so, so far right now, all systems are a go for, for that trial to happen on March 4th. Trump has got a long shot appeal of what he calls presidential immunity or former president immunity, or I don't know what the heck it is. I can just tell you it ain't in the constitution. Um, he's basically saying that, you know, presidents can do no wrong and you can't sue, you can't indict a former president. 
Um, yeah, that's just not the way the law works. Indeed, the impeachment clause of the Constitution expressly says, after you remove someone from office through impeachment, you can prosecute them. Of course, how could it be otherwise? I mean, only in you know third world dictatorships do you have a kind of different rule. So I don't think that there's any viability whatsoever to this lawsuit, but Trump's lawyers are banking on it as a way to try and gum up the uh, March 4th trial. But I think right now the March 4th trial is going to happen and it'll take about two months. And I suspect at the end of it, Donald Trump will be convicted. Now, of course, he's presumed innocent in our system. He's entitled to all the benefits of the American criminal system, including that the prosecutors have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest and most difficult standard in our law. It's not 51% or something like that. And Jack Smith also has to convince all 12 jurors that Trump did it. If anyone says he didn't, then Trump can't be uh, convicted. So um, lots of systemic protection for Trump, but still at the end of the day, given what he did, what we know he did from the January 6th committee and other things, I think it's hard to imagine that he's going to be acquitted um, from that. Now, then the question is, can he run for president? And the answer is, under the Jack Smith indictment, you know, barring the question of separate proceedings in Colorado or elsewhere, but, but just does the conviction alone bar him from running? And I think the answer to that is probably not for this crime because Jack Smith didn't charge the other crime of seditious conspiracy that bars someone from holding future office. He just charged this one, which I think was a wise strategic decision because it shows that he's not acting politically. He's not trying to bar Trump from the ballot. So it is possible to imagine Trump can run even after he's been convicted. Then there's the following question you ask, Kitty, could he be jailed? And he could be jailed. Um, if he is convicted, he will file something called bail pending appeal and try and say, look, I'm appealing these issues. I've got a chance of winning. So you can't jail me until after um, the appeals process is over, going all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Um, that may win. Uh, you know, we'll see. But there's a possibility that he'd be free pending bail, um, pending his appeal. Um, there's a separate question you asked, which is, Trump seems incapable of following the two gag orders that have been imposed on him. Um, and what are the consequences of that? And this is actually something that the DC judge, Judge Chutkin, has been struggling with. And because um, Trump keeps on violating her order. I suspect what's going to happen next is not another fine, but rather Judge Chutkin saying, look, I warned you on this on day one. If you violate the gag order and try and poison this trial, my remedy is to move the trial date up. And I think that's what she's going to do. She's told Trump she'd do it. And Trump has not given her any confidence that he's going to not comply, that he's going to comply with the gag order. Indeed, right after her last order, Trump had this whole tweet, you know, that basically accused Biden and his Democratic thugs of bringing the, of bringing the prosecution. Thugs was the exact word Judge Chutkin picked up on in asking Trump's lawyer um, back at the oral argument over the gag order. She said, if someone calls the prosecutor a thug, you know, is, you know, that seems like a threat and intimidation to me. Um, so I think, you know, there's already fodder for Trump having violated the gag order just within 24 hours, 
of it being reimposed. Um, we will see, but I think that's the remedy. Um, there I left out the other two cases. Do you want me to talk about them or not really? Yeah, I mean, also there are just a couple questions about like um, if you know there once it goes to trial, these judges are going to have to also protect the jury and in, potentially include jurors, intimidation of jurors in those gag orders. Is that correct? And then how worried are you about hung juries in some of these cases? Yeah, I'm not worried about a hung jury in D.C. I just think um, what Trump did was so beyond the pale that um, that he'll get a conviction. I, I feel that way about Fulton County, too, and Mar-a-Lago, frankly. I think these are easy cases and not hard ones. Um, uh, in terms of the question, uh, what was the first question again? Sorry. I don't even remember now. <laughs> oh, you're so good at it. You're still... no, you're... <laughs> Um, hung juries, hung juries, intimidation, gag orders. Okay, intimidation. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a real concern. Um, uh, and, you know, that that's something courts can deal with by blocking the identities of jurors and making sure that the jurors stay anonymous. Um, and even for me, like, I very much believe that this trial, these trials should be televised. I think these are these are America's courts. They're the taxpayers' courts. You pay for them. You should be able to see what happens in court. Um, and I believe that particularly for this criminal trial, because prosecutors can't go out to the media and blab and talk. It's a violation of prosecutorial ethics. But a defendant like Trump is very clear he's going to do that after every day of court. And so there'll be this kind of crazy spin and I think the American people should be able to see for themselves what this trial, what's actually happening in this trial. Um, so that then raises the question, if you do that, does that threaten the jurors further? And the answer to that is no, I don't think so, because you don't have to show the jurors' faces or identities in any way on camera. And I should say, I was special prosecutor for Minnesota in the George Floyd murder. And we prosecuted those four cops and Derek Chauvin was our first trial. And we had actually made a mistake. We had said the trial shouldn't be televised. And we wanted to protect the witnesses and jurors. And the judge in the case wisely said we were wrong. And mostly said we were right on everything else. But on that one thing, he said, even though Minnesota's never televised a criminal trial, here the public interest was so important that he did it. And I have to say, I think it was one of the best things about that trial, because before the trial, the American people, Minnesotans, were very divided, I think, about who should win that case. But when everyone could see the trial for their eyes, it was really different. Like the number of threats and stuff we faced before and during the trial, before and during the trial, totally different than when we got the verdict and afterwards. Because I think if people can see it for themselves, it gives them a modicum of confidence in the ultimate result. Is there a way to put pressure on in different districts or different courts to, to have it, you know, um, to have well, it on camera? On court, so in state court in Georgia, it's already going to be televised, which is- Yes, right, right. Yeah, great. So at the federal level, there's a possible prohibition on televising criminal trials. Depends how you read it. Uh, the prohibition, but at least that's an argument. Um, I think NBC and a bunch of other uh, press organizations have filed briefs saying they should okay. lift this 
potential prohibition and let everyone see it. Um, the Rules Committee for the federal courts took this up last week and said, we don't have authority to change the rules ourselves. Okay. Well, my friend Sarah Meister recommends that we all write John Roberts, so. I think that, I mean, he is the ultimate decider on this. It's the judicial okay. courts of the United States um, and uh, of which he presides. And so I do think like whether or not um, this rule changes here or not, I think that decision makers should hear from the American public about this. I mean, you know, I get that in the year 1800 or something, it might've been different, but we live in an Instagram, Instagram kind of camera age. You and I are seeing each other, you know, hundreds of miles apart from one another, but we're seeing each other. It matters. It changes our experience of reality. Yeah, it's such a really good point. Um, well, I know we're sort of getting close to time, Neil. Can I ask you a magic wand question? Because a lot of... Um, a lot of questions came in about Citizens United and we didn't get to it. Um, we've had Senator Whitehouse come to Big Tent, which was um, really interesting. We've had the Brennan Center come. So I'd love to hear, like, if you had a magic wand that you could wave, how would you fix the um, disaster that Citizens United has wrought on our country? What would be your magic wand fix? Um, I don't know that I have a fix besides overruling it. I was the deputy on that case, um, and I was so distraught after the decision because it's the five to four Supreme Court decision that says corporations have free speech rights and campaign finance restrictions on them are unconstitutional because money is speech. Um, I do think robust disclosure requirements are still permitted. Indeed, the Citizens United decision says so. So I think when you have any organization, whether it's a PAC, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a labor union, whether it's a newspaper, maybe the media, whether it's Big Tent, I don't care who it is, if they are giving money to a political campaign, I think we, the American people, have an absolute right to understand who that is, where that money is coming from. That doesn't solve the problem, but at least we would know. Okay, well, <laughs> we still, we got to fix this, right? We have to fix this. Um, you're getting so many thank yous in the chat. And I, I want to say, I hope you'll come back to Big Tent, Neil. It's been the thrill of a lifetime to talk to you. Um, you mean so much to so many people. And we appreciate all that you are doing on behalf of democracy. I have to steal a line that Katie Couric said last week when she was with us. Um, let's be the CPR to democracy. I really liked that. And um, that's how I see us going forward. If you want to write letters, if you, I'm sorry, if you want to do some um, ballot curing with Virginia or text banking to Mississippi and Georgia voters, check out our website. And Neil, come back to Big Tent in 2024. Thank you so much again. It's just such an honor. Thank you for all your work.